0: Welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to Series 8 and Episode 5, where Jesus heals the man born blind. We're in John chapter 9, and we're going to be studying this chapter in this episode uh, to discuss this remarkable miracle and the wider context in which it took place. As we've been in Series 8, Um, The location has been in Jerusalem. Our source has been John's Gospel. And we've seen a series of events that have taken place surrounding uh, a visit that Jesus made to Jerusalem during one of the major Jewish feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles. As mentioned in earlier episodes, there are three major festivals or religious feasts Um, amongst the Jews that were celebrated at the time of Jesus in Jerusalem, the Feast of Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles. And they each celebrated different aspects of the history of Israel in its early formation. Passover celebrated the Jews leaving Egypt miraculously through the Red Sea as the waters parted and Pentecost celebrated the giving of the law of God to Moses Mount Sinai and um, subsequently and the Feast of Tabernacles um, celebrated God's faithfulness to the Jewish people as they spent 40 years in tents in the wilderness now John particularly focuses on what happens in Jerusalem and he gives information to us about a number of visits that Jesus makes to Jerusalem during his public ministry that are not recorded in the other three Gospels. But before we come back to that, let's just make a quick comment about where the other Gospels left the story before we uh, just focus in on this particular aspect of this uh, Jerusalem visit. The Gospels Matthew, Mark and Luke Described very clearly the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry, uh, which came to an end in what we call Series 6 in the uh, life of Jesus. And in Series 7, we saw some transitional moments where Jesus took his disciples aside to a town called Caesarea Philippi and the nearby locations and a mountain nearby and revealed to them that they were going to be leaving Galilee and heading south to Jerusalem. Luke is clearest in explaining uh, what was happening as he describes Jesus as setting his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. Then John takes up the story and this is the story we've been following in the last few episodes by describing a visit to one of these religious festivals uh, during this period when Jesus is uh, not returning to Galilee, he's actually Positioning himself in different parts of the country as he's gradually heading south, both in Samaria, central part of the country, and then later on in Judea, the southern part of the country, much nearer Jerusalem, the capital city which is in Judea. So, John describes a number of visits to Jerusalem, and as mentioned in recent episodes, this is the third visit. The first one is described in John chapter 2 when Jesus. Uh, particularly went to the temple and um, confronted the traders there, overturned their tables and uh, commanded them to stop their trading because they were making money out of other people's religious duties in selling them animals for sacrifice and exchanging coinage in the temple compound. That created a real stir in the city. At the same time Jesus performed many miracles Uh, which caused a sensation as well. One of the religious leaders, Nicodemus, came to see Jesus privately and that's recorded in John chapter 3. So that was quite an eventful visit to Jerusalem right at the very beginning of his ministry. Then the second visit is described in John chapter 5, where Jesus performed a particular miracle, healing an invalid of 38 years um, who'd been disabled and was uh, sitting by uh, a pool called the Pool of Bethesda, which uh, was... Uh, alleged to have certain healing properties and jesus suddenly came to him healed him his story became famous all over the city but the fact he was healed on the sabbath caused a controversy with the authorities we'll come back to that point in our episode today now in the third visit to jerusalem which is the one that we are um, in the midst of here uh, jesus comes to the feast of Tabernacles, and we've seen a number of things happen already Uh, described in John uh, chapters 7 and 8. And in particular, uh, we should note that Jesus spoke about the coming Holy Spirit um, in uh, a statement he made uh, in the temple compound during the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And he stated that uh, in John 7, 37 let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink whoever believes in me as scripture said rivers of living water will flow out from within them and john goes on to explain that this is a reference to the coming of the holy spirit which would take place after jesus death resurrection and ascension on the day of pentecost as described in acts chapter 2 so that's one thing that jesus said and that was particularly significant because there was a ceremony in the Feast of Tabernacles of um, gathering water from the Pool of Siloam, which we're going to refer to in our episode as well, Uh, a pool within the city where water uh, came up through springs and uh, gave water to the city which had no rivers or other obvious source of water because it was high up on a hillside. And this water was taken from the Pool of Siloam in big containers and poured out ceremonially in... The temple signifying the Jewish expectation of the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's important. But it's also important to remember that Jesus in John chapter 8 verse 12 made another very significant statement. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, this is again in the context of this particular feast, where not only was there a symbolic use of water but there was a symbolic use of light uh, the feast of tabernacles was well known for the fact that people got uh, torches together which they lit uh, which would have been saturated in oil with fabric um, around them and placed these torches um, all around the temple compound and in other parts of the city creating a blaze of light which was a unique feature of the of the Feast of Tabernacles. And this itself drew many pilgrims to come to this feast, which was alleged to be the most popular religious feast in the Jewish religious year. So the crowds were very large. And with all this light in the temple, more than usual, much more than you'd find at other times of the year, Jesus makes this dramatic statement in John 8:12: I am the light of the world. This particular statement becomes very significant when we uh, read the story that we're going to discuss in this episode, in the miracle that takes place during uh, the course of this reading. Now, there's one other thing to say by way of introduction. And if you've been following these episodes, this is something that you'll be familiar with. But the actual atmosphere in the city of Jerusalem was very tense whenever Jesus came there. And that tension seems to accelerate during the course of his life, each visit he makes to the city seems to be more tense and complex. Now, the reason for that is that this is the home of the religious establishment, the priests, the high priest who lives in the city, who at this time was a man called Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, which Caiaphas as, as high priest chaired, 70 men who uh, had the final legal jurisdiction over the conduct of the Jewish religion. They made decisions about how religion uh, should be conducted in Israel and particularly how the worship in the temple should be conducted. And there were lots of different types of people in the Sanhedrin which included a number of Pharisees. This is a sect we've come across uh, regularly who were particularly opposed to Jesus. And so it's not surprising with this authority structure in Jerusalem That tension arises when Jesus comes because they've already given a lot of consideration to who Jesus is and what they think about him. They've sent groups um, from Jerusalem to watch what Jesus does, to interrogate him with questions, to report back to them with information when he's operating in Galilee. And they've come to the conclusion that he is a false messiah, a false prophet, uh, and they're against him. So no wonder when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's not in a friendly environment. The crowds are divided. They're pretty uncertain in their opinion. And we just see all sorts of different opinions expressed by people in the crowds, which is not surprising when you consider that the crowds came from all sorts of different countries and all sorts of different places. And not many of them had had much personal contact With Jesus who hadn't operated in the area of Jerusalem very much. He'd spent all his time in the north of the country where many of them hadn't been. But of course rumors of what Jesus had done had spread far and wide and his miracles caused a sensation across the whole country and there'd be people in every community including many residents of Jerusalem who would have experienced miraculous healing from Jesus when they traveled uh, to meet him in the north of the country. So it was a tense environment and this tense environment had become a dangerous environment because not only was Jesus opposed by the religious leaders, but his very personal security was at stake as well. For example, during this very Feast of Tabernacles, uh, just a few days before the event occurred that we are looking at here, we read these statements. I'll just give you um, a couple of statements here. John 7 verse 30, uh, speaking of the crowd. At this time they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now Jesus at this point is in the temple compound. He is teaching and uh, some in the crowd want to make a citizen's arrest, which is what we would call it today to actually uh, get hold of him to bind him and to take him to the religious authorities but somewhere or other they weren't able to do it but then in verse 32 it said the pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him then the chief priests and pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him well the temple had its own militia its own police guard that was responsible for keeping order in the temple where thousands of people came. There are a number of risks to public order that were fairly obvious. Uh, Crowd control, theft, um, violent incidents between different groups, attacks on the priests, all this sort of thing. So the temple guards uh, had their hands full with those kind of issues. And they were dispatched by the Pharisees and the others, the chief priests, to Uh, to arrest jesus but then we find a few verses later that um they failed to do that verse 45 of chapter 7 finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the pharisees who asked them why didn't you bring him in no one ever spoke the way this man does the guards replied so no citizens arrest no arrest by the temple guards but both of those things could have happened um, in the events that just took place immediately before uh, what we're going to be looking at then in the verse before our passage the last verse of chapter 8 chapter 8 verse 59 after a further intense and difficult conversation between jesus and some of the religious leaders When he made a proclamation before Abraham was born, I am, which was a statement of divine identity, by the way. And that's the subject of our last episode. It says in verse 59 that this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So there's a third occasion when his life is genuinely at risk. So this is the context of. The events that happen in the episode that we are going to discuss now. John chapter 9. Let's read the first section, first 12 verses, which tells us the remarkable story of this healing. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? But he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came along seeing. His neighbours and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked him. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So here's the story of this miracle. Jesus has literally just slipped out of the temple compound with people picking up stones to to try and stone him to death. And then he encounters this man. And this miracle unfolds in Jerusalem. Now Jesus had healed many blind people before. The Gospels tell us that this was a miracle he performed regularly. And it's interesting to note that the healing of the blind was associated amongst Jews generally at this time with the coming of the Messiah. It was considered to be a messianic miracle. Now, we've come across this fact in um, some earlier consideration in different episodes. Let's just quickly refer back to one very clear example of this. So Matthew 12, verses 22 and 23, says this. Then they bought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Now, the son of David, as I've discussed on several occasions already, is a title for the Messiah. Because... The Messiah was considered by prophecy to be uh, necessarily a descendant of King David. Now, if we go to Isaiah 35, a well-known messianic prophecy, and the whole chapter, in fact, is a messianic prophecy. Isaiah 35, 1 to 10. But if we go to verse 5, we see Isaiah prophesying some uh, results of the messianic coming. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Now, this verse in Isaiah was considered to represent some of the things that the Messiah would do by many Jews at the time. So it's therefore significant that Jesus heals a blind man which is making a statement about messianic identity and authority at the very time that this has been contested most strongly by the religious establishment in Jerusalem and many people in the crowd that gathered in the temple. The crowd was divided but the religious establishment was virtually united. Against Jesus. And if we go back into John chapter 8 and look again at verse 12 onwards, we see a very intense debate about Jesus' identity. And that reflects another debate that goes back into John 7, and of course, that goes back into previous uh, conflicts as well. But at this particular point, it had reached a very intense moment. And the very next thing that Jesus does when other people are saying he's a false messiah, saying you're not even a Jew, you're a Samaritan, you're operating under the power of demonic forces. Those two accusations are made in John 8, by the way. At that very time, he heals a blind man. Very remarkable. And he demonstrates his statement i am the light of the world by creating literal light in the darkness for someone who had not seen ever before he'd been blind from birth jesus demonstrated what it meant to be the light of the world bringing hope and healing and salvation to the darkness of the blind man's life now his method of healing is very interesting you probably have noticed it wasn't an instantaneous miracle. Most of Jesus' miracles are instantaneous, but sometimes there's a process involved. Here, Jesus makes this mud out of his saliva and the and the soil in the ground, puts it on the man's eyes. There is no immediate miracle at that point, but he gives him a command, go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and as he washes his eyes, So immediately his sight is restored. Now, the significance of this is probably that this creates a very public event because people will see him walking through the streets of Jerusalem to the Pool of Siloam and he'd he'd probably need some help to do that as he was still blind. And then they'd very quickly see him walking around the streets of Jerusalem with his eyes open and his sight perfectly restored and of course the Pool of Siloam was the place where the water was taken for the symbol um, of uh, the Holy Spirit uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit which was enacted uh, regularly during the Feast of Tabernacles every year as I described in earlier episodes and mentioned just briefly now and so that water is symbolically connected to the power of the Holy Spirit so the power of the Holy Spirit is on Jesus to heal the blind, indicating his divine authority, being able to use the power of the Holy Spirit, and his, his messianic identity, being able to um, uh, restore sight to the blind, according to the prophecy of Isaiah 35, and the expectations of Jews that this is what the Messiah would do. So this is a really profound event that takes place here. It provokes... A further debate and it's a prophetic indication that what that what Jesus had just said as recorded in John 8 about his identity is actually true let's now read on John 9 13 to 34 they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a sabbath It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who'd been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us. And they threw him out. Well, there's a tense discussion if ever there was one. And the trustworthiness of what the man says is being debated. Some... People at that time believed that sickness was caused either by the sin of the individual person or possibly family sin of their parents or others in their family. That was alluded to earlier on. And so everything this man said can be disqualified if you actually believe he is steeped in sin. Jesus didn't agree with that view as you will have noticed in the first passage that we read. And the other contentious issue, of course, is that Jesus heals on the Sabbath, like he did uh, when he healed the man from the pool of Bethesda, the man who was an invalid for 38 years, and that caused a controversy. There's a division of opinion. And interestingly enough, this passage reveals that persecution is beginning to start for those who follow Jesus. So the religious leaders said that they'd throw out of the synagogue, in in the Jerusalem area at least, any people who chose to follow Jesus and acknowledge Him as the Messiah. That's a real threat because if you throw them out of the synagogue, you throw them out of the centre of society because the synagogue was the place that society met and people built relationships and friendships and were respected in society. This was a tough and difficult conversation, but the man himself could see that something profound had happened, not just to him, but it represented a profound reality. Jesus must have prophetic power. He must indeed be the Messiah. Our final few verses, verses 35 to 41. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked what are we blind too jesus said if you were blind you would not be guilty of sin but now that you claim that you can see your guilt remains jesus graciously reveals his full identity to this man and notice his response he immediately believes in jesus and worships him as the messiah the son of god the son of man But Jesus makes a prophetic prediction here that people who claim they've got clear understanding are going to turn out to be spiritually blind. And people who have deficiency of understanding are going to have clarity of understanding of who Jesus is. This miracle is a symbol of the division between those who follow Jesus and acknowledge him and those who resist him. Our final reflections here is to emphasise the grace to a needy man. Isn't it wonderful? He had been in need all his life. This man was a beggar. We come across other beggars uh, on the journey of Jesus' life and in the early church quite often. The blind often had to beg. They had no means of earning their own income. And they would gravitate towards Jerusalem because of the volume of people. They would be in Jerusalem during the feasts because there were the most people there. And so this man was seeking to get his material needs met. He had been in need all his life and yet suddenly he was set free. It turns out here that religion often suppresses the true identity of Jesus. Religious structures can oppose the true identity of Jesus. Spiritual blindness is the worst type of blindness. So let's follow the example of the man born blind. Let's openly acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's follow him when he says, Lord, I believe. And let's follow him when he worshipped Jesus on that amazing day when he was suddenly and surprisingly healed. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.